Welcome to the Onside Podcast, a podcast all about innovation-driven entrepreneurship here in Atlantic Canada. We are sharing stories and building community around accelerating growth using this kind of entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alex McCann. Thank you for joining us. Today, we are uncovering the story of a brilliant and dynamic entrepreneur, Greg Wagner, CEO of Halifax-based Oberlin AgriScience. Born in Toronto, Greg obtained an undergraduate degree in biology and a PhD in geomicrobiology from Western University in London, Ontario. Uh, He also did a postdoc at the Venter Institute in San Diego, where he studied bacterial nanowires and microbial fuel cells for wastewater remediation. He was a research scientist uh, for NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, working on Sherlock, which I'm very excited about, a UV laser-based microscope for classification of organics on Mars. Now based in Halifax, Nova Scotia, Greg is the founder and CEO of Halifax-based Oberlin AgriScience, a large-scale insect farm growing black soldier fly larvae. Greg, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. We're excited to have you here with us today at our Onside podcast. First time that we're getting back in the saddle with doing our podcast. And today is a very exciting day as well. Not only is it close to my birthday, which is very important, but something even more important uh, related to some work that you have done in the past uh, at NASA. Today is going to be the landing for the Mars Perseverance rover, which I understand that you played a very important role in, or it seems very important to me because I don't have a role in it, uh, and that the rover will be landing uh, on Mars in just a couple of hours. So I was wondering how you are feeling about that today. You might have over-exaggerated my role um, on the Perseverance rover. I did play a part. Um, it was an exciting time in my life to work at the Jet Propulsion Lab with a tremendous team of people. NASA was always a dream. I mean, it is really a nerd's paradise. And I've been a nerd my whole life. And getting the opportunity to work at JPL and to even be a part of a project. I mean, and it's an immense project with thousands of people that work on a project like the Perseverance rover. We worked on a very small part, our group, which is one of the instruments that is on the arm of the rover called Sherlock. And even within that large group, I played a small role, which was a lot of the ground testing of the prototype. And so that was a lot of fun for me to run around different parts of our planet here using some of the technologies that are now very shortly going to be on Mars. That's awesome. Why don't you um, tell us a little bit about what Sherlock stands for? Oh, and gosh. What is it? What is it? What is that about? Because I think that that's probably the most exciting part about it. Well, Sherlock is an acronym like everything else at NASA. Um, I should say that my supervisor uh, was very good at uh, acronyms. And he, in fact, we have... Uh, there's a Sherlock and there's a Watson and he came up with a ah. Moriarty and an Adler. <laughs> and so there are acronyms all in the same vein of um, of the of the Sherlock enterprise or the Sherlock um, genre. So I looked it up because I was like, what does I was like, Sherlock's got to stand for something. So and you tell me if I have this right. Scanning habitable environments with. Was it, is it ramen? Mm-hmm. Okay. I was like, that's got to be something else because I'm thinking noodles, but it's, <laughs> I'm not sure. You can tell us what that is. Ramen luminescence for organics and chemicals. And when I read what that was, I was like, wow, that is, that is a perfect acronym. I would have never been able to put that together. So, 
if I'm understanding that correctly, this is to look for life on Mars. Not directly. What we're doing is we have a very fancy laser that we are going to be shooting around Mars. The The words in that acronym, the more complicated ones are, are Raman, or, uh, which, which you mentioned. Raman is it's actually the name of a person who almost 100 years ago to the day asked the question while he was on a cruise, why is the ocean blue? And it was something that had puzzled him. And it turns out that it is this phenomenon for which he, uh, there's been several Nobel Prizes, or there's been at least a Nobel Prize, is that it has to do with how light interacts with materials. And it's now known as the Raman shift. And it is, you shine light at a surface, and we typically see the reflected light. And that's the, you know, I'm looking at a green plant and a black table. That's the light that's reflected back. But there's a very, very, very small proportion of light that is slightly shifted in color because of the way it interacts with the chemical bonds within the material. And it is that tiny, tiny shift that our instrument measures and which allows it to classify the organics on a surface. So the Raman instrument that we have on Sherlock uses a deep UV laser. So it's a laser beam that we can't see with our own eyes. And the light that comes back has interacted with the organics and shifted just ever so slightly. And that allows us to tell what kind of organics are on the surface. That's pretty cool. That's a that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, we we always joked around about how fun it is to that we're going to be firing lasers around on Mars, and so that's uh, within the next few hours. Yeah, um, yeah, that's exciting. So, so you worked on this project uh, with NASA and JPL, and it's going to be landing on Mars very shortly. So we'll be, uh, I've already checked out the website. So I'm, you know, checking down the clock to see when it's going to be coming down. And that was a really important part of your life was getting the opportunity to go to California to work with JPL to do this amazing project, which is now going to result in fruition uh, shortly. But why don't you tell us a, a little bit about who you are and kind of your journey, maybe from that point or a little bit before that point to arriving here in Atlantic Canada? So I've been a scientist for as long as I can remember. I mean, even as a little kid, I was very curious, always asking why. And I had great parents that really supported that curiosity and would bring me science-based either toys or activities or books and really pushed me to continue to ask why and supported me through my journey through all my education never really questioning what I was curious about but just be curious about the world and you'll find interesting things and interesting things will come from that and that really led to my career I went to university knowing that I wanted to do something in the biological field, still had no idea what part of biology I liked. Uh, like many, you know, my first day of university, I wanted to be a, a doctor or a surgeon, but that quickly evaporated because I, w I wasn't as interested in that as I was with just pure research. And throughout my undergrad career, and then in uh, later in fourth year university, getting the opportunity to do actual research was like a an amazing drug, an amazing rush. Um, I remember very clearly 
We had the opportunity to use an electron microscope once in one of our classes. And this is a microscope, very powerful microscope, that you can use to look at individual bacteria and even viruses. They're very powerful. And I remember looking at uh, some bacteria and just having the, the notion that no one had actually seen that particular bacterium before and that what I was looking at and that we were looking at as a class was new. And that was just such a rush for me. And so I knew I had to continue on and go to grad school, which I did. And grad school was a great opportunity to merge my love of science and the curiosity with also my passion for adventure. And I was given a project of looking at bacteria in the deep subsurface of South Africa. Um, I had a chance to go into the gold mines to the deepest part of the world. We were more than four kilometers underground wow, looking for <laughs> yeah, looking for life in these really weird places. And it just the the bug had or the the hook had been set, and i was I was going to be a scientist forever. That's really interesting. Uh, it's interesting to hear about how your curiosity was nurtured and you developed this kind of adventurous exploration or curiously seeking kind of behavior. So that's, uh, or it seems like it served you well. And I know that you said that um, you you went to South Africa, worked on some work there, and that you'd been kind of pursuing that uh, journey there. When you finished there, is that when you decided to go to California? Or was that before that? South Africa was my PhD. And uh, so I spent three, four months in South Africa, brought the samples back to, to Western, to, to Canada, where I finished off my research. And then I had the opportunity to go to California to the J. Craig Venter Institute to do a postdoc. And what was interesting for me in that it was I was still dealing with bacteria and microbiology, which was similar to my PhD, but I was working in a completely different field of microbiology. It was a new emerging field called electromicrobiology. And this is actually the the amazing discovery was made by my my supervisor at the Venter Institute that bacteria actually are connecting themselves in their own electrical grid that they make. So these bacteria, which are tiny, they are smaller than the, uh, the width of a human hair by a lot, but they are actually making electrical wires and they are transmitting electricity between each other. And this discovery is seemingly now as a fundamental thing that, that bacteria do in nature. And so it was amazing to be at the forefront of that research. And how did that interest in the, the bacteria kind of lead you down sort of this next path? Or is there a connection between that work and what you're doing now at, uh, at Oberlin? I understand that uh, you've, you've once described yourself as a a scientist and a recovering academic <laughs> or something like that. Um, does that part translate into how you decided to proceed down a path towards Oberlin? The actual connection between my work in bacterial nanowires and microbial fuel cells and the fact that I'm now a bug farmer here in <laughs> Halifax seems very disjointed. And it is in a way. The connection is actually was my mentor in California, a, a man by the name of Ken Nielsen, who is arguably the father of environmental microbiology. He has started multiple fields of microbiology, uh, one of which is electromicrobiology. And uh, in discussions with Ken, when my wife and I decided to move up to Halifax, 
I needed something to do. <laughs> and so my wife had a, had been offered a job at Dalhousie University in the biology department. And uh, we were excited to come up here and follow her career. But that left me with something that, uh, mm -hmm. that needed to be done. And in, in discussions with Ken, he had started a small, uh, small scale black soldier fly farm in Los Angeles. And it seemed in talking with him, it seemed like a great idea to bring that idea and that concept to Nova Scotia mm. for many reasons, which I'm sure we'll get into. But just in a, in a nutshell, there is organic waste or food waste everywhere. The protein crisis is global. So putting a black soldier fly farm in Halifax or Los Angeles or Europe or Asia or Africa, really it needs to be done everywhere. And so it seemed like a great idea. Our ties here to aquaculture and the fact that the soldier fly can be used as a feed source for salmonids, mm -hmm. salmon, just seemed like a natural fit. And it was kind of exciting. I, I wanted to try something new and the thirst for adventure kind of led me down that path. And had you been an entrepreneur before you decided to do this? Like, how did you make that leap from being that, what did you call, recovering academic and then <laughs> having this great idea or being inspired by a great idea? And how did you decide to make a business out of that? Yeah, I mean, short of having a lemonade stand as a child, <laughs> I, uh, I never really had been an entrepreneur as such. But what I did get exposure to both at the Venter Institute and at JPL was seeing a, a scientific concept be pulled off the lab bench and moved into something bigger than it is. Mm -hmm. So at the Venter Institute, we worked on scaling up microbial fuel cells for wastewater treatment from bench scale, let's say the size of a, a, a hockey puck, mm -hmm. uh, to use a Canadian uh, <laughs> analogy, to uh, a fuel cell that we had attached to a, a brewery to help clean up their wastewater that was on the order of three meters high, 10 meters long, you know, a large scale device. And so at the Venter Institute, we were trying to scale up a scientific concept from prototype to actual design. At JPL, we sort of did the same thing. Sherlock, the original, mm -hmm. was a bunch of bits and mirrors and stuff on a table. And what happened with the, the incredible team at JPL was to take that tabletop concept and turn it into the instrument that is now mm -hmm. about to hurtle through the atmosphere of Mars. Mm -hmm. And and that was really exciting to me was, was how do you take something off the bench and bring it forth into the world as a new entity? And to me, the Soldier Fly Farm was is is basically that. It's it's a new era of farming. It's a new era of taking something small scale and actually bringing it to large scale. Yeah, that's really uh, that's really inspiring. Um, and I think that that's something we're really interested in at Onside is this idea around creating something new or bringing something new into the world that uh, maybe didn't exist, whether it's an idea or a process. Um, and how do you go about doing that? How do you um, get the uh, energy, the excitement, the fortitude, the perseverance <laughs> to, <laughs> to keep going to actually make something like that happen? Um, well, since we're talking about Oberlin, maybe you can talk a little bit about kind of the the technology behind it. Like how how do you farm black soldier flies like how do you how do you how do you i mean i've been i've been i've been lucky enough to have gone to the facility and seen things with my own eyes but 
maybe you could talk a little bit about what's going on there and what's what's so special there. Sure. The black soldier fly is one of the insects now that is being adapted for large-scale industrial growth, mainly because of the protein crisis. Uh, there, there's this huge shortage that, um, until I actually started farming the soldier fly, I had no idea that I'd heard of the climate crisis. Mm -hmm. I'd heard of all the other crises we seem to be facing, the global pandemic. But I didn't realize that there were, we actually had a protein crisis. And this is something that the soldier flies and other insect farms around the world are looking to address. Mm -hmm. And so the way we do it at Oberland is that we have brought, so the soldier fly is a semi-tropical species of insect. I actually had them, uh, or Aaron and I, my wife and I had them growing or living in our compost pile in San Diego. Just naturally, they were, they were in there. They were consuming the, or, the organics that we mm -hmm. would you know, throw out with our kitchen waste. And they went through their life cycle. And it was really funny. I hadn't recognized what was growing in my compost pile until I started a soldier fly farm here in Halifax and said, oh, I've oh. seen those before. Not many people are looking that intently in their compost, except for probably you. As I said, always a nerd, always curious about what's going on um, at all levels. Um, so what we have done here in Nova Scotia is we've, we've managed to bring the entire life cycle the, of this tropical species indoors into very controlled environment. And um, we've been able to ramp up production in a very small space. So what is tremendous about insect farming is how much uh, either protein or, or biomass, depending on how you look at it, uh, one can produce in a very small area using very, uh, very low amounts of water and, mm -hmm. and energy inputs. And this is sort of one of the big game changers. It's you know, we have a, a, a small, our pilot facility now here in Halifax, uh, we have a relatively small farm area. It is maybe the size of a tennis court. Mm. And I've always done the conversion to say that that tennis court, we can produce in that tennis court the equivalent of about 180-ish acres of corn. And so when you look at land use and water use and other resource use, insect farming is really has is, is going to change the world. Mm. I, I agree with you. I think that it is. A lot of people, you know, I, I, I have tried a variety of insects. I, I have to be honest, I can't claim that I've had a black soldier fly. I don't think I had any uh, when I visited. You had some dry ones, but I don't think I was brave enough at the time to try one. But I've had some crickets and I don't know, I've probably like eaten that little worm that's at the bottom of the tequila bottle. I have, I'm not going to lie, I probably have tried that. But uh, the, the concept of eating insects is kind of new, maybe in the West, maybe not in the East. It's a little bit uh, snacks or, or all kinds of insects. How have you been able to convince people that eating insects is, is the way of the future? Or what do you think people think about that? So there are two ways to think about insect farming. There is the direct to human and there are a lot of insect farms right now around the world, uh, even in Canada. There's a, a cricket farm in, in Peterborough that is doing direct to human. The EU just approved, very recently, just approved the mealworm for direct to human consumption. So there are groups that are looking to go straight to human. We've taken the opposite or the uh, an alternate path, and we are uh, raising the soldier fly to feed our food. So we are looking uh, to use the soldier fly as an ingredient in mm -hmm. the feeds that we are feeding to our poultry or, or, or our pets or aquaculture, mm -hmm. so salmon or trout or char. And 
it's a lot easier to mm. to get a salmon to eat something than it is to get a human necessarily to eat an insect. But what has really been interesting is how quickly it has changed. Mm. So I know my news feed is always full of, of <laughs> insect-based news, but what what is amazing is how many of my friends and colleagues are sending me articles that they have read in in mainstream media, mm -hmm. you know, Forbes, the New York Times, Bloomberg, things like that are actually picking up on the idea of insects as a food. And very rapidly, perceptions are changing. Mm -hmm. And I'm the first to try crazy foods and things like that. But I actually don't think insects are that crazy. I mean, we eat lobsters and shrimp, and it's a perception thing. It will take some time to get people to eat uh, certain insects, and some people may never try them, and that's fine. I have tried the black soldier fly. Uh, my wife made some brownies once, mm. and it needs some work. At least our <laughs> recipe needs some work, but... My dog loves them, and so uh, we're going to focus on on pet and, and mm -hmm. uh, agriculture and aquaculture is mm. sort of our focus. Oh, maybe uh, do you want to talk a little bit about how you got the name for Oberlin? Yeah, I think that's a... Sure. Oberlin <laughs> comes from uh, my family's heritage, which is um, from a little country in the middle of Europe called Liechtenstein. And Oberland in German, which is the, the language of, of Liechtenstein, means the highlands. And so it is the region of Liechtenstein, a, a country that's smaller than Halifax Harbor, actually. So if you were to place Liechtenstein in Halifax Harbor, the tip of it would be at the in Bedford Basin, and it wouldn't make it past George's Island. Oh, wow. Okay. So for those of us here <laughs> in, in the locally, you can get a, uh, an idea of how small that country is, that it would fit basically in, in Halifax Harbor. But anyway, Oberland is an homage to my roots uh, and my family's roots, who they emigrated from uh, Liechtenstein in Switzerland, actually through Pier 21 here in oh, Halifax wow. okay. in 1970. And so this is my my comeback. Ancestral. Ancestral. Second ancestral home. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, it was it was fun to have that as a name of the company and because heritage is also is really important to me and and. Yeah. Okay. Good. I'm really glad that you were able to share that story with us. I think that that was a interesting tidbit that probably not a lot of people know. So over the last little while, you've been able to grow Oberlin and get it to a place that's expanding and you're developing new partnerships and, and things like that. What have you been able to do here uh, locally to see Oberlin become part of a, a larger ecosystem that's really trying to change things? I mean, first off, Nova Scotia has been an incredible place to start a company. It is big enough that you can make a, an impact. People have heard about it. People know about Halifax. Halifax is growing. But it's small enough that you can you can mm -hmm. connect with people at all levels, mm -hmm. through government, through government agencies, NGOs, uh, the universities. And, you know, you meet people through one aspect of your life who then end up being really important in another aspect of your life or being married to or golfing with or fishing <laughs> with. Um, and and what I found here in Nova Scotia is there is this immense sense of community that people are happy to introduce you to their partner or their their friend to help you move your either your company along. And so this has been a tremendous place to start a to start a company. And I think that has allowed us to grow as fast as we have mm. with um uh, as lean as we have, I mean, we, we've we've done this on a I'm not going to say shoestring budget, but uh, you know, 
um, we've we've managed to get where we are with with a, lo- a lot of help from from Nova Scotian, uh, ACOA and NSBI mm-hmm. and and those kind of projects that my colleagues in the rest of Canada are just amazed at how how good we have it out here to to start companies. And they say, why would you start a company anywhere else? <laughs> and I say, come on out, we love it out here. So, yeah. We definitely have a, a community feel where you can uh, go from one end of Halifax to the next and, you know, get from your lawyer to your accountant, back to the office. And I think there's definitely a community feel and people want to see you succeed. They want to they want to see your business grow and thrive and create something new. So I, I definitely would agree with that. I was kind of thinking a little bit about your sort of entrepreneurship uh, journey and you know, your your science background and wondering if you thought there was anything in common uh, with, you know, having a science background or the skills that you learned through having a science background and maybe the skills or perspective you develop as an entrepreneur. Do you think those things are aligned or? Yeah, I very much think that they're aligned. You know, science is a process. Science is a method of looking to understand something that is unknown or to better something. And I think entrepreneurship is has been similar. For me particularly, I'm definitely venturing into the unknown for me. <laughs> but, you know, using the scientific method or scientific process of testing, obtaining data, reevaluating, and then moving forward and constantly doing that sort of iter- mm. iterative process has been... I mean, one very important for me in the entrepreneurship world, mm-hmm. because I am always afraid that I'm going to step way too far out of my own comfort zone, mm-hmm. only to either make a big mistake or do something like that. So I've taken sort of the same approach of, of cautiously moving forward to getting some data, coming back, thinking about it, making mm-hmm. a decision based on, on those data, and then moving forward again. And I see that the similarities between the scientific method in the natural sciences is similar to that of entrepreneurship. Hmm. Yeah. So it's sort of uh, you're generating ideas, testing them, prototyping them. If they don't work, uh, double backing and, and starting again. Yeah. Now, one difference, though, I find is that in the sciences, you can keep asking questions and you can keep saying, well, I want to make this better and better and better. Whereas in entrepreneurship, what I've found is that at some point you have to make a decision that this is the way we are going to move forward for the next foreseeable future. You know, with our our Black Soldier Fly, we could keep tinkering on Mm. our equipment that we're using. And and yes, we are still doing R&D, continuing to do R&D, but we have to make a decision because equipment has to be bought or decisions have to be made for the longer term. And that's something that I do find a little challenging is when do you make the decision that uh-uh. now is a good enough time to sort of stake a claim and move forward in sort of a larger scale or larger step. That is something that in the sciences you can tinker forever. Um, but in entrepreneurship, you have to make a decision at some point. Yeah. Yeah. I, I Especially I'm sure uh, shareholders or other folks probably at some point want you to like make a decision and continue and get to the to exactly. the next stage or the next level 
Um, that's that's an interesting comparison. Have there been any, any barriers or obstacles that you feel that you've faced on your entrepreneurship journey? I know you you know you said that it wasn't something that you had thought about originally going down this path, but you got curious enough to or interested enough and wanted to to try you know with the with Oberlin. But was there anything you can think of that's been kind of a barrier, an obstacle that's kind of stood in your way? One of them is has been to recognize in myself when I don't know something. And in those cases, to find people that I want to work with, to bring people in, either new team members, consultants, um, who fill a gap. You know, in the, in the sciences, I was always content to, to, you know, work within a collaborative team, but I was happy not knowing or not understanding everything. I can't, I can't do that now. There are times where where things have to move forward. You know, we are we're in the process of submitting some patents. I have no idea of patent law, but we have to move forward. And so, bringing in um, um, expertise mm-hmm. to to help with that has is a necessity and is something that um, you know picking the right people. I guess is is a it's not really a barrier. I've been very fortunate mm-hmm. in having having a good core team, but I think that is something that that often people think they have to do everything themselves or you have to understand the whole process to be successful. I don't think that's the case. I think you can bring in where you know you have large gaps. And I think that's, whether or not that's a barrier, uh, I don't know, but it's definitely something that is different or something that I've had to put a lot of thought Mm. into. Mm. uh, Has COVID-19 impacted you in, in any way? I mean, we're all sort of living through this moment with, you know, various, you know, restrictions and things like that. Has that impacted you with your business or how you operate or? Um, Yes and no. I mean, our online sales are up. I think people (laughs) are at home are looking at their pets and are wondering what their pets Mm -hmm. are eating. So that's, it's been good in that sense for online sales. Um, You know, we originally, when, when Nova Scotia locked down, we went to a shift based or a rotational based uh, workforce. But what it, what it really showed me is how efficient our system is Mm -hmm. and how, you know, having a large warehouse, you know, we can have three, we're six employees in total, uh, but on the floor, there's three and the rest of us are in the up in the upstairs office. Um, but with three people spread over 8,000 square feet, we were well distanced. Um, but what it, what it highlighted to me is really how resilient our system is mm-hmm. to major disruptions. Now, we did have some challenges. We had pieces of equipment that we were uh, waiting for for our renovations, for our, for our scale-up, that were stuck on the wrong side of a border mm-hmm. when things got shut down. Um, deliveries and, and, and other such things have been a challenge. But really... I mean, touch wood, we've been very fortunate through COVID to, you know, keep all our staff employed, to actually grow our staff. Mm-hmm. We hired two new people uh, through, through, during the COVID mm-hmm. pandemic and, and to keep, keep chugging along. So um, I, I consider us to be very fortunate through this. I mean, I know a lot of people have had mm-hmm. a, a different um, experience okay. with COVID. Um, we're also incredibly fortunate where we live mm-hmm. uh, in Nova Scotia, we've done a tremendous job here, which has allowed us to have a lot more freedoms than other places have had. And um, we've been able, as I said, we've been able because of that to, to keep the business open and, and yeah. growing. 
Do, do you think, um, you know, the pandemic and, and COVID has definitely made people think, you know, we've had to rethink kind of how we're doing things. And there's also uh, a refocus now on climate. Uh, what we're doing to the planet, you know, why, why are these diseases coming out of the woodwork? You know, what, what's what's going on there? Uh, you mentioned the food crisis or protein crisis that's uh, kind of running in parallel with that. Do you think do you think that this moment represents a unique opportunity or a supportive opportunity as it relates to the work that you're doing? I think so. I think over the last, well, over the last several years, we've definitely seen a change in um, people's opinions about climate change and and what uh, climate and other crises as well. And 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 of course, the pandemic has really forced us all to kind of look inwards and and think, what is going on? I mean, our planet, we are our system that we have we have built for ourselves, our system of existence is not as robust as we had thought it was. Mm-hmm. You know, we have all, we, uh, especially in, in North America, Canada and North America, have lived such a privileged, fortunate life. We've we've not had these major pandemics. We've not had to face uh, these diseases as such. And what, what, at least to me, what this has shown, this COVID pandemic has shown, is that our system is just not resilient. And mm-hmm. what we need to do now is build resilience back into our into our system. I mean, just recently, as in, I think yesterday or mm. the day before, Texas just had, because of, of some some climate issues and policy issues, their entire electrical grid shut down. This is the, this is the society that we've built for ourselves where a small perturbance in some power station or some climate weather event can bring down an entire electrical grid. We saw it in in the, the COVID pandemic when everyone went out to buy toilet paper, and <laughs> all of a sudden there was nothing left. Mm-hmm. To me, it was a real walking down the aisle of a grocery store at the beginning of the pandemic and seeing empty shelves was a, an incredible eye opener to me that mm-hmm. we are this close to catastrophe, mm-hmm. and the way to to deal with that is to build redundancy and to build resilience into our supply chains, into our food systems, into our power systems. Um, and and insect farming is a good way to do that, I think. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I remember being in the grocery store and not finding any flour. Everybody was at home baking. You couldn't get, you couldn't bake cookies. I was like, I want to bake cookies. There's nothing in, there's, there's nothing on the, uh, on the shelves. But um, yeah, it was really interesting. I think it was... Um, you know, I think what's interesting about COVID is that it's showing people, uh, you know, as you said, how close we are um, and um, that things are not um, things are not as smooth for all people all over the place uh, and that we have been living in a fairly privileged uh, kind of position. And we just didn't even realize it uh, until you can't get the basic things that you need or want or safety equipment or all these other kinds of things. Yeah. So. And I find it amazing that simple things like you can't get, you know, for instance, latex gloves or or nitrile gloves because they're all made in another country. And you think here we are in Canada, we have what I thought was, you know, that we were self-sustaining to some degree, but it turns out that we're not, that we produce a lot of our own natural resources and we produce a lot of things here in Canada, which is great. 
but we've gotten to such a globalized world that that things have been sent to other countries or or, or, or manufacturing has been sent everywhere and we are so connected and and I think that's what the what the this global pandemic has has really highlighted for a lot of people is like how connected the globe is mm-hmm. and it's you know the climate crisis clearly uh, is global co2 doesn't care where it's emitted it does not care about a border. And it seems like the same thing with a lot of our, our supply chains and things like that, that it is, we are just a one one mm. global community um, and we need to start behaving Thinking that way. It. Yeah. I remember uh, sometime last year there was a, I don't remember if, if you'd heard about this, but uh, related to food, there was um, some concern about where people were going to get seeds for planting. Uh, <laughs> and I thought, oh my gosh, I had never thought about that. I'd never thought about if the borders are shut or... You know, if there was a supply chain disruption, where would we get seeds to plant crops to eat food? Mm-hmm. That had never been a thought. So I'm glad your uh, Black Soldier Fly <laughs> facility is nearby in case we need some, yeah. some snacks or protein <laughs> right away. We can we can uh, get to that. Um, we're getting close to the end of our time. I have two quick questions. Um, one is one that we kind of ask uh, a lot of our guests, which is how would you define what innovation-driven entrepreneurship is. We've been talking a, a bit about this in our podcast and thinking about it um, and thinking about what does innovation-driven entrepreneurship mean? I think what it means is the courage to take your maybe crazy idea and seeing it through and pushing it through. I think that that we all have these ideas that that come to us at, at at different moments, and the real joy and challenge is is those people that that have the ability to to take that idea and really run with it. And and you you mentioned seeds earlier, like a seed in the wind to just blow and then find a place and germinate. And I think that's one of those things that that really Nova Scotia and Halifax has been amazing to see. There are so many young startups here with so many really interesting people doing everything from solar power to these little tags that that were designed to track fish but are now being used to track uh, medical uh, samples. Um, to waste, to oceans, to everything. It is an amazing collection of, of individuals and, and people here in Nova Scotia that are just driving this really interesting and exciting uh, exciting time. And mm. I think that's the, 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 the ability to move something like that through its early phases um, and, and keep the passion. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I appreciate your I appreciate your your insights on that. We are we're always cur- curious what uh, what people's thoughts are around that idea. Um, last question that I have for you um, is really um, I don't know if this is an easy question or not an easy question, <laughs> but if you had a chance to launch a startup again, what would you do differently? Is there anything that you would do differently? In fact, I did start another company ah. <laughs> um, with uh, a colleague of mine at the university at, at Dalhousie. We started a, a, a small company based actually on microbial fuel cells that I did way back when. And we are doing it very differently. 
Mm. We uh, actually went through the Creative Destruction Labs. Uh, we were um, we didn't make it all the way through, but we learned a tremendous amount. And we are that entity is moving forward much more like a typical startup mm. has been doing, where we are like many struggling. How do you get a concept from lab? out of the lab and into prototyping and mm. actually forming a company. Uh, and it's been interesting for me because it has been so different than Oberland. Oberland came to and there was an obvious need for protein. There was an obvious solution through insect farming. Um, of course, there's been innovation, but our, our, our other company has been so different that mm. um, um, I feel like I'm spinning my wheels. I don't know the next steps. Um, so, yeah. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, well, I think that's it for our time today. I've been super excited that you came in. Uh, really appreciated hearing about your journey, uh, about everything that you've done with Oberlin, your thoughts around innovation and entrepreneurship, about the ecosystem that we have or trying to grow here uh, locally. And of course, uh, so thankful that you were able to share uh, your contribution to the Perseverance uh, rover, which will be landing very shortly. And I'm so looking forward to uh, to hearing about the success of the landing um, and uh, and all of that. So I'm, I'm really thankful that you came in today. For our guests that are listening, what would be one way that they could connect with you? Are you like on Twitter or I don't know, um, website? How can people find out more about uh, Oberlin or about you? So we have a, a, a basic website right now, uh, oberlandagriscience.com. Um, we also uh, have a, a brand that we are selling our, our product under, which is named Obi's Worms, which is, uh, was in, uh, of course, came from the name Oberland. Uh, so <laughs> obisworms.com and uh, oberlandagriscience.com would be two great ways to get in contact with with me or with the team. And uh, yeah, that sounds good. And, and if people wanted to get uh, the Obi's worms, can they get them on your website? Yep. We're online, but we're also now in, in several of the pet values around Halifax. Ah. And so we're now pushing out into into stores. And so you may see our product okay. and our lizard uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> on, uh, on shelves um, around town. Okay. That's good. Next time I'm at the pet store, I will look for that actually, because I get my dog some dog treats too. <laughs> Uh, and with that, I just want to say thank you. And to all of our listeners that are out there, please remember to check out our website to learn more about us at onsidenow.ca. And thanks, everybody, for listening in today. Stay tuned for our next upcoming episodes. <laughs>